created live on Fireside. Welcome, I'm Laura Lee Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me live on Fireside Chat, where you can be a part of the conversation as my virtual audience. I'm Lori Lee Binstock, your host. Everyone has an opportunity to ask me or our guest questions by requesting to hop on stage or sending a message in the chat box. I will try to get to everybody, but I do ask that everyone be respectful. Today's guest is Aaron Johnson, creator of the Chronically Undertouched Project and co-founder of the Holistic Resistance and Grief to Action. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me today. And I want to talk a little bit about um, the Chronically Undertouched Project. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's uh, probably one of the most ambitious projects I have entered into over the last seven years. And it's a project that's really tracking. Um, right now, I'm focusing on African heritage men because of their how they're targeted, but we've expanded and worked with a lot of folks. But it's really about tracking the magnitude, the impact of being chronically undertouched and how it bleeds into mental health, it bleeds into um, complication on the consent and um, relationship spaces. It, it, it impacts folks in, um, that are incarcerated, folks that can be arrested because of their chronic and undertouched trauma stories and how it manifests in their lives and then how oppression kind of doubles down on that. And so the chronic and untouched project is me slowing down in community what it means to build a comprehensive touch plan for a body in this context, in this moment I'm working heavily with is young black men. How do we build up a tonic comprehensive touch plan for them? And where, where do they go? How do we build it? How do we get ahead of it? How do we even introduce the idea? So it's a, it's a big project, but it's, it's really um, profoundly impacting my life and the folks I'm able to work with. Amazing. Well, can you talk, what do you mean when you, when you say, chronically undertouched yeah so there's a couple ways we track it um i would say a big portion of the population is chronic untouched but we the spectrum that was all extreme i first kind of birthed the phrase and kind of really understood the magnitude of what it happens to a body and to an individual that is chronic untouched it was a young man i was working with seven years ago and he me and him were in this like mentorship i was mentoring him and i was trying to bring him to a space of balance and we were in arguments almost daily. And I remember sitting down with him one day, trying to find a grounding space. And I said, you know, when was the last time you had thoughtful platonic touch over the last 12 months for three minutes? And he sat there and I remember him sitting there and going, I can't think of three minutes in the last 12 months that I've received thoughtful platonic touch. And as extreme as that might actually feel, that was actually pretty normal. Um, for a lot of folks I met thereafter is that being undertouched on that extreme level, you can't even think of three minutes of thoughtful, platonic, continuous touch. Um, that would be, that would be a pretty heavy level. And I would say, you know, average person, uh, would need, uh, for just nervous and balance, uh, 15 minutes of thoughtful, platonic touch. And many folks qualify there, uh, of not getting that. So there's a way of just tracking the the impact of on different bodies, different demographics, different economic levels, 
the impact, but the for him, I would say anyone that's in that level of three minutes a year or less, that's extreme. But that's that's chronic and that's serious, and we need to get to get ahead of that and build some thinking around it. And do you mean you know hugging, hand holding? Is it consecutive? Yeah, we want. I mean, ideally, it's consecutive, right? Ideally, we are dealing with folks that it's it's, it's continuous for three minutes. I mean, most hugs are five to eight seconds, and so. Mm-hmm. It would take a lot of hugs to get to the three-minute mark. And so I think for me, being able to realize hand-holding is one of our common entry points for a lot of the people I work with. We just practice um, simple hand-holding and, and holding attention in our bodies in that process. So hand-holding is a common way. Um, we oftentimes sit and hold hands because the trauma story of walking and holding hands as Black cis men in platonic ways is really complicated in our culture. So sitting and dropping into our bodies in more of a meditative space is the most common way we have been able to build a thoughtful touch plan for folks, but it also goes a shoulder to shoulder, back to back, cuddling, all those are advanced, but we, we start with the handholding typically in our in our um, program. Hmm. I wonder like as, as an adult, I'm thinking, am I, am I, am I touched for three minutes at a time? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's interesting when you, you talk about touch and how important it is because, you know, uh, you know, when your, your child is born or when a child is born, they, you know, most, I mean, not necessarily hospitals, but, you know, let's say for me, I worked with a doula and the first thing they they talk about is putting the child on your body, how yep. important it is to to have that release of oxytocin. And and I guess that's, that's the same way as adults, but we don't really think about it that way. No, unfortunately. And, and, and working full time and having big responsibilities can push us out of even noticing the magnitude of what happens over time. Wow. Well, I want to get back to that a little bit more, but you are also the co-founder of the Holistic Resistance and Grief yeah. to Action. Um, can you yeah. talk a little bit about the Holistic Resistance and, and your purpose? Yeah. Holistic Resistance is the umbrella org. It really supports um, our nonprofit arm of Grief to Action, and it definitely is helping fund and organize the CUT Project. Holistic Resistance is our oldest um, organization, and um, it does some specific things. Holistic resistance is about dismantling oppression at every level. We realize that um, we can't take it all on, but we really want to notice that oppression hits the the nervous system, hits the body, hits the community, hits, you know, so we realized, I remember I was sitting in the car and we were talking with the fellow activists and they were expressing they were in college at the time. It's like, Aaron, I'm doing all the right things. I'm, I'm going to college. I'm trying to, and the oppression still coming. It's like I'm holistically oppressed. And I remember looking at them going, we have to holistically resist. And we both froze. Like, wait a minute, what'd you just say? I said, holistically resist. Write it down, write it down. So write down holistic resist. And we really thought about it for a couple of months and said, like, what does it mean to resist with our money, to resist with our care for the environment, to resist with our relationships, to resist with how we eat our food? Not that we can nail it every single time, but it's tracking all the ways that oppression can come for us how do we push back? And so mostly holistic resistance is a um, the economic structure is it teaches workshops and we do consulting, we do one-on-one programs and we do facilitated training programs. And so in that, that's kind of the, the entry point into um, dismounting oppression, but we also do song circles, which is a profound place for us to really reclaim the voice. And we do a lot of encouragement around natural building, minimalist living, I live in a tiny house. So holistic resistance says, how can we find simple, practical, accessible ways to build a village around dismounting oppression? That's kind of the 
the the mission statement and the marching orders that we 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 walk and go forth with holistic resistance. Well, how do you do that? I can imagine that's yeah. a that's a it, in the in the world we're living right now in right now it it that's quite a challenge and 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 quite yeah. a mission. Yeah. It, well, we we want to be practical about it, right? We're not we're not going to be um, on every day to we, we I, I remember I was in film school and I was talking to my film director and we were like Walmart's the worst this is like 20 almost 20 years ago uh, Walmart's <laughs> the worst you don't want to get anything from Walmart now they're like <laughs> what huh but at the time we're like Walmart's the worst and he's like you know but they have cameras for really good prices as a <laughs> radical filmmaker go buy a camera from Walmart and make a good documentary even if it's critiquing Walmart use the system at times when you have to, right? You're you're a, you know a broke college student. You need to make a camera. Don't not go to Walmart and buy your camera. Go buy it and then go make your bomb film and then make that film, even in critiquing Walmart. Hmm. Yep. Well, you know that's interesting. My friends used to because my I have friends who have issues with certain companies and they won't they won't purchase. But there are those moments where I have a small like footprint, right? Yeah. You know, you can be in an mm-hmm. apartment, you can be in the house, but the idea is that we're just we're working constantly orienting ourselves as is accessible to be aware of oppression. When we can step forward and make a big move, we do. I always say if you have $5 million, donate. If you have $5, donate. It's all towards the same dismantling. Is we do what we are able to do and not try and get too much to a high standard. So I just, it's just really being able to track and just notice how oppression shows up and how you can live a lifestyle continuously to adjust against it when it makes sense for your nervous system and your lifestyle that, that you can do. So that's the that's the mayor. I'm not here to tell people to sell their house and move to off-grid spaces in order to be host resistance. It's not at all. It's more about finding that space of like, I want to be a part and I want to make sure I'm resisting, not just in my marching, not just in my donations, not just in like how I raise my kids, but I'm going to try and do it in all the ways I possibly can. I'm going to try to have a, a more holistic approach to dismantling oppression. Um, well, I wanted to talk about, and you focus on um, African-Americans specifically African-American men and the mm-hmm. LGBTQ plus um, communities. Yes. Was that, is that something that you thought was extremely important to you? It's the hardest group to reach for oftentimes when it comes to building out ecosystems of any kind of uh, resistance structure. Um, those that are mm-hmm. targeted by oppression oftentimes have less money resource, less time. They're they're really busy surviving oppression. So trying to focus on them as a group we support and allyship with, we found to be a good starting point. Um, have we supported white folks in this work? Of course. Have we supported uh, Latinx folks in this work and all of the people of the global majority? We definitely have. But we find that um, even though I'm a Black man, um, I will have three gatherings in a given year and two be African heritage ones. And the, the ones that are the biggest economic investment oftentimes gathering people to global majority and African heritage folks specifically, just because they have to like get childcare and navigate oppression and travel across the country. Like there's a way that we have to just track them. And so I always start with the group that I find is oftentimes um, the hardest access to. If I say a cuddle party um, and say anywhere in California, I'll get 30 white folks will show up to that event. If I say cuddle party and say <laughs> black men, um, we got, you know, we'll get five and that's a crowd, right? And we'll get eight and that's, that's, you're winning because it's such <laughs> a, a targeted space. So 
I know I can have a cuddle party in a problem anywhere in the West Coast and have 30 white women show up um, and one maybe queer person of global majority and maybe African heritage. And I could also have a cuddle party I'm market hardcore for and I'll get five black men going, I'm going to try this out. It seems kind of strange because I've never seen it before. Mm-hmm. Try so we just try and track those groups that this becomes a high calorie burn for them to show up and believe it happens because we see more, if I have a boxing club or a basketball club or a wrestling club or some kind of after kind of aggressive sport, we can crowd that with black male bodies and, and, and male bodies. But when we say tenderness, mm-hmm. you want to say closeness, you want to say cuddles, cuddles and black men, but that's ungoogleable now. Now you're <laughs> talking about things you cannot Google. I can Google black men even be executed in the street, but I cannot Google two cis black men sitting in a public space, just tenderly being with each other in the United States. Outside this country, it's more common, but in the United States, now you're talking about a really radical act. Well, how do you reach out to those groups, the LGBT groups and the African-American men specifically for something of like a cuddle party? And I want to get to that too, because I want to know more about the cuddle party, but how are you reaching out? Yeah. So, Holistic Resistance was born out of mentorship programs. So we were mentoring Black men. So I already had a critical mass of Black men that I have mentored over the years. And so I kind of started with those folks that I already were working with. And my mentorship group was more about like how to keep them out of jail, how to get them jobs, how to get them cars, how to get them like just their foot, you know, their, their feet under them to get going in society. So that was a the kind of, that that is a crowded field. When you say mentorship, but that is the actual profile it's a credit field. So then in that field where you got them all in one space, just organically from the years of doing this work, I mentored for almost 15 years before I birthed Holistic Resistance. Um, when I did that, I had a little bit of a, a, a kind of a profile. And then I uh, am, am, am touring. So I'm on tour right now. So I'm traveling. Like tonight, I'm flying to Colorado. I'll be in Denver. And I'm going after, after Denver for four days. I'll be in uh, North Carolina. From North Carolina, I'll be back in Los Angeles um, working with the Three Black Men Project with Resma. Menicum. And and so for me, I am I'm literally going to Denver. I'm getting three black men to connect with. And I'm going to the East Coast, I'll get 20. And then I'll go to LA, I'll, I'll get 120, hopefully. Right. So I, I'm really going to where they're gathering and, and presenting my my idea and a, a practice. And, and out of 100 men, you'll get 10. I'm like, I'm into it. And oftentimes, who have been a big ally is black women. Black women have had been partnered with black men. They're, they're hearing about my project. They're going, my husband needs to talk to you. My son needs to talk to you. My <laughs> my brother needs to talk to you. So black women have been by far the biggest supporters of the Crank It a Touch project. And also other folks are in like uh, mixed relationships. Uh, I just talked to a person who's in my silent retreat this weekend um, that says, I have a partner. He's dark, but he's not African heritage. He's Latin American, but he's dark. Actually, he's Chicano. He identifies as Chicano. And he's dark. And he could use this program. So there's a way that a lot of partners are coming to me. I, 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 I think that would be, if I would say that what's the secret ingredient to making it work right now is black women. Black women are, are really the champions of spreading the word. I'm getting more texts and calls and emails from black women and about their partners and, or, or, or from the black man because they're a partner. You need to call, you need to email him. <laughs> email the cut project. You know, so I'm getting this support and it's really helpful because I think these black men are showing up really wanting something like this, but it's never seen and it available. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Do you go after other organizations or companies to try to promote this? Yeah. So I'm, I'm hitting up everybody, but yes. Um, so I work with, because Holistic Resistance, we do a lot of um, consulting work with like yoga studios and 
we work with um, just different orgs throughout the last 10 years or seven years, almost 10 years. Um, and so I'm constantly letting them know that I'm available to offer this project consulting work. And so the Three, Man, Three Black Men Project in Los Angeles is the biggest collaboration I have to date with Resma, um, being one of the you know New York Times bestselling author of um, Grandmother's Hands. And so this is the biggest, so I would say he's the biggest like allyship person that's been like, I want to back this. I want to support this. I want to join and let you come and let, invite you into our conference. So I would say, yes, that would be um, our biggest. Um, I've, I just talked to a couple of folks that sent me contacts from folks in Denver, actually, that some retired NFL players that want to talk to me about this project as well. And I'm really excited to talk to folks that have been, um, you know, on this like uh, perform at the highest level of athleticism in football. That's like the the biggest narrative, the black brute, you know, narrative to mm. see how they can think about tenderness. You know, football is like the opposite of tenderness. So talking to retired NFL players would be one of my goals. So I, I don't think I'll ever join or, or collaborate with the NFL because we're kind of the polar opposites of each other. But folks that have kind of retired or, or, or left that system, I'm really interested in talking to them. So I'm really used to talking to folks that are retired from uh, these high levels of aggression to think about where is the tenderness in their experience and how do they build that up and how does their persona as an athlete hurt or hinder their tender platonic experience with other black men. Mm. What about colleges? I feel like or schools. Um, is that also something that um, you're reaching out to? Yeah, colleges are huge. Um, I haven't had a big success immediately, but I think it's just a matter of time once I get um, a good like context into the college that feel like they have that that space, like a good sorority or a group or people that really are thinking about this stuff. Um, but I haven't made big context with colleges yet, but that would be a great, I imagine that'd be a great place to drop into because of the, the age bracket. The, the challenge I think with colleges is that the ecosystem is Pacific. You know, they, they have a Pacific way to enter those spaces. And so I'm trying to find the the f most free and liberating way to enter to a college. But yeah, I think colleges are going to be a great demographic to, to target here soon. Yeah, I would think so. Um, and, you know, I wanted to talk about like um, DEI, our um, diverse equity and inclusion. Um, and I, I know that you kind of, you kind of work around that and anti-racism work and, and going back to schools, you know, actually my daughter's school, she's in elementary school. Um, they actually have a DEI representative at their school. Um, wow. do you think that that, yeah, I know. It's really cool. It was, it's, 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 she's been there for several years. She's amazing. Um, and I know that you kind of talk about some common mistakes that companies make. So I kind of want to yeah. talk a little bit about that, like common mistakes that companies make with doing DEI and anti-racism work. Um, but I also kind of, I'm curious what, what you think about ha have schools doing it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I work with a lot of, like, I work with Oakland Unified, multiple schools in their districts. So I work with Palm Springs. I work with a lot of schools over the years. Um, schools are amazing, first of all, and challenging when it comes to the uh, space. It's a very evolving uh, uh, industry in how we're, it's a powerful place to really transform young folks and teachers' environment. And it's also a place where you have specific limitations. Um, but one of the things I would say when it comes to schools and common mistakes that schools can make or we should be watching for as parents and as participants, and then also like organizations that are like doing DI work where they can oftentimes stumble. I think school specifically is DI work 
is probably one of the most sacred places to do it, if I can even say that out loud, because the students' minds are being shaped. And so being having a diverse and thoughtful curriculum, having a classroom that is tracking all the bodies in there and all the people and all identities in there is is is, is a high task coming out of like the last 20 years, but it's an important task to have. The thing I think schools make, uh, I don't know if it's a mistake, but it's oftentimes what we frame as a mistake is they're oftentimes reactionary. So they'll oftentimes call in a DEI person after the harm is done and they'll oftentimes fight for mm. budget after um, damage is done. And that's, that's kind of common in most industries, but in schools, it feels particularly painful. We're talking about young, young minds oftentimes in their young experience. And so it feels really like it's, it's always a re- 80% of the time is reactionary. So there's some kind of way that um, a, a teacher or a district has continuously made mistakes. And so they get, they get invited into a big conversation. They come in with it. Every once in a while, we get some schools that want to get ahead of it. But generally speaking, it's a reactionary. So I think one of the first things I think is that it has to be um, framed more as an essential part of the whole educational experience and not something that has to have, it has to have damage before it respond. Um, so that's the mm. common mistake I see. Um, the second thing I would say is um, they demand help us require that the people be at trainings. And I think that's important because teachers are already overworked a lot and it's hard for them to show up to things. But I think there's a way to give staff options to leave DEI trainings if they don't have the capacity to be there. I say that because when you force your audience to be there, they're just going through the motions. And I'd rather have five teachers that are hearing, fighting, ready to go than 10 that are like on their laptops trying to figure out how to not be in the room. Um, because this is life-saving work. This is like CPR. If we're going to do CPR and you're going to be on your laptop and someone has a social in your classroom, you're like, what happened? There are students that are that are losing their lives um, on multiple levels because they don't have a full comprehensive support around their identities and their experience and their education experience in a very, very vulnerable time. And so for me, I feel like the urgency oftentimes is, uh, there's a song I remember singing, it says there's a fire on the mountain and no one seems to be on the run. That's how I feel oftentimes that, Mm-hmm. Um, I smell the smoke, I see the fire, but everyone's relaxed until the fire gets so big and so, you know, starts taking lives and Close. we start getting, getting getting excited about it. So I'm like, I, I want to see us get prepared before the smoke is in the air. And so that's the thing that I often will will encourage. Um, the last thing I'll say that often is a common mistake, and I, I say this often, but people will kind of go past this quickly, and that is speed. I think people underestimate how much time it takes to shift the culture at a school in a classroom. And oftentimes time also means more money, but I would say that uh, it's better to do a, a methodical, thorough DI experience than a weekend to solve 30 years of dysfunction. So I think the realistic of time um, makes sense. If anyone wanted to lose like 50 pounds in a the gym, they don't go to the gym on a weekend and go, hey, I got a you know important date <laughs> next week. If you can get me in this gym and work out and lose 50 pounds, any trainer would be like, get out of here. I'm not a surgeon. This is a, it, takes, it takes months, sometimes years to drop that kind of improvement on the body or shift in your, in your, whatever you're doing. I think DI falls in the same category. We have uh, energetic, a lot to burn off our, our, our move through our systems, shape us. And we don't have that kind of um, investment. There's a, just a kind of an unbalance of how much time it takes to really heal and notice and then start building comprehensive custom healing practice for that school and that district in that, in that region. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that that you're right. I feel like in in a lot of places, having having a DEI representative come in would be very much reactionary. Um, So I do feel fortunate because I I think they 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 designated 
um, my daughter's school's DEI rep years ago. Um, wow. And she's not, she's just, she's, she there, she goes into the classrooms there. She brings in a topic um, and it's, and it's amazing. Um, and so, yes. And I think, I think, I, I feel like, and I live in a very progressive area. I'm in Washington, DC, extremely okay. progressive. And so there's, there are a lot of companies that also have DEI reps. And, mm. and so I think that's, that's really, really amazing. Um but in, in other places of the country, obviously there there's still some some struggle and some issues, and actually really educating and talking about this this topic, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And and you know, one of the questions I wanted to ask was, what is the shaping force of the Black experience in America? And and if we could also throw in like LGBTQ as well, mm -hmm. if that if mm -hmm. if we yeah. can. Yeah. It, you know, when I look at the shaping force, that is when one of the things that has kept me up at night, you know, there's a way that mm. um, you grow up and you see your parents and your family and you just like are eating breakfast, going to school, trying to find out who runs faster and, and maybe you got a new belt or whatever is hot in your age at that time. And you don't notice because you're, you're eight, you're 10, you don't notice that you're being shaped. And mm. so when I look at the black experience in America, I, I try to say, what is what are the things I see that are shaping all of us towards a certain direction? Where are events or structural things in place that that are thematically shaping Black bodies in America? And one of the things I was tracking is, because I'm 41, I turned 41 in May, and one thing I track is that I went to school in high school in the 90s, right? And mm -hmm. what I track is there was a space where I remember living without handheld tech like cell phones. Freshman year in high school didn't have a cell phone, right? And so by the time I got into college, we started having more tech. And what I saw sort of shaping forces, not just, oh, we got tech, but it's how Black bodies show up in tech. How are we, not just in like a tech industry, which is a whole other conversation, but on all the platforms, what's the common theme of how American culture wants to extract the Black experience or show the Black experience and how does that shape my experience? And one of the things I saw that's still intact is one of the biggest shaping forces of black male bodies in this culture is athleticism and sports and not just like oh yeah i play sports in high school i play football too but really is is how much america stops thinking about valuing black bodies after their bodies are not used for either hypersexual activity or athletic activity once we get past that point we stop thinking we have a handful of like barack obama who surprised us like oh my goodness to be president but well, we saw this like immediate flash push back against that narrative it was a shift in our culture to see him um, become president and have it for eight years, but it's a whole different narrative of like how we we didn't celebrate the Obama-like bodies, the Obama-like thinkers as a collective culture. Obama did surprise mm. us and what's interesting about that is a shaping force in black bodies is how Obama was the perfect timing-wise, but the perfect ideal black body for America and it was almost too much for America in hindsight. At the time, it was like, great, we're, we're figuring it out. But I look at his skin tone. I look at his mixed heritage. I look at how um, how manageable black he was, right? Mm. I have no beef with Obama, but how manageable he was as opposed to if we darken his skin a bit, right? By about five stage, how much that would impact. If we added some 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 language that wasn't so smooth, he had to be a communicator that was that was very skilled. He couldn't he couldn't communicate 
at a level of other other presidents that struggle with communication, he would never be president. He had to speak at a certain level. So, but the, the shaping force is 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 when excellence shows up. It can't be too excellent. It can't be too mm. aggressive. So, in that narrative, shaping force is really finding that 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 lack of attention for the black body after they, be, they they can't be extracted from easily. So the NFL, the UFC, the NBA, still the dominant male domination spaces. Now, to expand a bit to the LGBTQ and the and the, and the black femme bodies, just to be a little bit outside of my lane, but I'll name what happens is that there's an echo. There's a complete echo when the black brute is to the dominant, most invested in black body in America. It does start to set a similar path, a parallel path for that same community of LGBTQ community and trans community as well. Because trans community is, is, is targeted by black cis men partly because of our, our trauma story around being full human beings too. And so there's a piece where black men have been told, I don't know if you've seen the sign that says, I am a man. It was a sign in 1968, uh, trash, 1960s, I'm sure that actual date, um, trash uh, protest that black men are walking. You can find it's a very popular I am a man. And you might even mm. heard the phrase that was said historically, like, hey, boy, get my stuff. Hey, boy, boy was used mm. as a way to diminish the black male experience. So, so black men fought really hard to be men. Like, I want to be a full man. What they're saying is I want to be a full human, right? right. I want to be a brute. I want to be a full human. And then we get to this era now where, like, I don't want to be a male or a female. I want to be non-binary. And, and if you're holding that trauma story, you fought just to be a man, that generation is really shook. Like, how dare you even... How how do you have the privilege to, of 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 changing that identity? So so I've been working hard in the Cut Project to slow down a lot of cis black men around being allies, skillful allies, specific to the trans community because of how we are weaponized against each other as a very tender mm-hmm. a tender relationship. And so there's a ripple effect that we're healing from, and I would say we're we're in the beginning stages of of, of really understanding the depth of how the parallels between being the black brute and not being seen as a complex emotional being and tender and all that's not available weaponizes it does a lot of things but also can weaponize us against our trans community um in a very very dangerous way and i've seen some major beautiful progress in that but there's a way that we're still in the early stages of that and 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 that's also a place where i think um we don't discuss enough and i would say that shaping force you know, in the LGBTQ community is, I have found the ecosystem is getting stronger over the last, say, 10 years. I say stronger. There's there's government progress. There's financial investment. But there's also legislation flashback right now. So I think shaping force mm-hmm. right now is political. It is, yeah. it, is, it is political and medical in a lot of ways. There's a way that we've made progress and it's been a collapse and rebuild and lines are being drawn right now. So I think it's a political shaping force. And I'm really invested in the knowing how we can see how this kind of political fallout from east coast to west how we see bodies and how we support trans community and how we support uh the queer community and how we can build allyship because one of the things i constantly see is that we're 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 we if we aren't careful we can be a lot of uh internal collapsing of conflict with each other and so that's why i'm constantly tracking when i was just at a an event where it was an amazing gathering of folks and it was a, some cis black men having a hard time with trans black folks and it's a white controlled space and they're like, I don't know what to do. We finally got black people here. Now we have this really complicated conflict amongst mm. the black folks and this is not new, but it's actually a place where we can actually collapse in our progress of the overall progress. 
because of those kind of intersections of healing that need to take place. So the shaping force is going to be how we can skillfully build village around these tender places where we have historical pain that's showing up, um, but not being identified until someone tracks it well. So trauma tracking the black brute narrative and, and transphobia and homophobia and finding ways to land together is going to be, I think, a shaping force. And it is a shaping force right now of our ability to unify at the numbers we want to see legislation, to see the protection, the medical um, access to everybody that is needed. And we have a history of medical um, damage to black bodies. And it's a, we're living through history right now of medical attacks on trans bodies too and, and queer bodies. So it's a, it's a dance. So I think those are going to be big shaping forces for us right now in this era. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, you know, a lot of things there that 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 really came to mind. And then, you know, I do want to mention, you know, in Authentic Insider in June's issue, we had our prosecutors POV um, talk, focus on trans and the law. And mm. it's, it's insane how many anti-trans bills are, are yeah. being introduced, nearly 500 um, yeah. and, and, and that is, is, is surprising. And, yeah. you know, what, what would your organization do or say about it, about what is happening right now? Especially well, it's during interesting. Pride Month. Yeah. I think one of the things that's important is resources. You know, I find that when I look at our ability to move on legislation, our ability to support at the medical space, it comes down to skillful ways to create capital and organize that capital to, um, to interrupt it. We live in a capitalist culture. So I realize right now there's a a place where funding is needed. Um, I think we have the heart, we have the, the we have the 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 direction we need to go. I think it's the fuel and that's the finance. And so for me, one of my biggest goals right now is to raise capital to support orgs that are doing it. So for me, I I think bodies on the ground is important. I think uh, showing up and and march is important, but Without a sustainable economic structure behind these orgs, we're going to find ourselves um, stumbling in the fourth quarter. And mm -hmm. I think we really need to be strong in the fourth quarter. So for me, the biggest thing right now is is is, is painful, and, and this is almost consistent across all the movements, is that if you would have saw my email box the weeks after George Floyd um, was killed publicly, mm -hmm. and anytime we have a massive death publicly, we get flooded with either donations or emails and almost, you can set a clock to it, three months after the event, is crickets again. And what's important is that has to be, we can't feel resistance only when the media gets excited about it. Um, I get invited to more speaking engagements, so more um, workshops in Black History Month than any time of the year. Um, but last time I checked, trans folks, queer folks, Black folks were oppressed 12 months out of the year. And so there's a way that I want to make sure that we show up on the times that our time to show up for, our, you know, Pride Month or Black History Month, and 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 when things happen in the media, that's important to notice it. But there's a way that the fall off does a lot like American. It's like a snacky, snacky resistance. So I would say the most important thing we can do is not have snacks on our resistance, but have a full meal that we grown from the ground that takes 12 months to grow, and we cultivate it, we water it, and it's consistent. To me. I find that to be one of the biggest things we can do is not let media alone be our motivation to show up for folks that are being targeted by oppression. Um, that's one of the, the the biggest tricks I think that that mainstream culture throws at us is we have so much content coming towards us that we don't understand the methodical work this looks like. It's that same sensation I feel like when I go in as a keynote at like elementary school 
and the kids are so excited. I come in, I beatbox, and I sing, I tell them some good things, and I leave. You know who the real superstars are? Those teachers that show up every single day, mm-hmm. Monday through Friday. Those are the ones we should get on our feet for every day. But it's like I see them every day. I take them for granted. That's almost not the racism. It's like the news comes in like the keynote speaker and goes, hey, how you doing? This thing has happened. Oh, my goodness, how bad it is. Watch it a couple of times. And then we're all like, ah! And then we all <laughs> go away. And it, But there's no consistency, right? So for me, that's it. That's it. I'm on tour right now for seven months because it's methodical. This is methodical movement across the planet to make sure that we're not just having flashpoint experiences. And so for me, I think that's the piece that I would say we're doing holistic resistance. We're, we're encouraging folks to take off their sprinting shoes and put on their marathon shoes, drink a lot of water, and get ready for the marathon version of dismantling this system. That with capital is going to shift everything. Yep. Constant education. Just constant, yeah. constant education. Fantastic. Is there anything that you would like to share that I haven't touched on? I will say, um, you touched on about everything, but I would say I have deep oh, gratitude around the cut project. And I would say the cut project is we're, we're making a documentary. I kind of referred to it earlier, but we're making a documentary. And I just want to invite folks, like, you know, all the listeners and people in the community that you might know someone that might want to be in the film or go through the programming, document the process. We're definitely looking for candidates to be in the film on that project. And that feels like an important way to scale the the ungoogleable images of, of a comprehensive botanic touch plan for folks to be available. And I would say um, we're also building some cut community workshops coming up um, next year. We are in the process of a land transfer in Northern California of 189 acres. It's off-grid. This is beautiful, beautiful landscape of, of nature here in um, Northern California. Young people have been up to Anderson Valley, but it's this gorgeous, gorgeous um, forest. And we want to build relationship with Black bodies, people to go majority, to be with the land to be building a, a, a comprehensive touch plan with nature. Because one of the things in the touch plan is to be close to nature as well and singing. Not only singers for singers, but singing for everybody. So singing, connecting in nature next year. But I just want to encourage folks that are interested in that to just like reach out, let us know what your interest is. Um, and we'll give you more details on that event. But the cut communities are being built here. And hopefully all across the United States right now, we're starting on the West Coast since we have land here. Um, but West Coast cut community workshops and experiences. So I just want to invite people to think about that with us and, and if you are uh, uh, unknown that I know, DC is a lot of black folks. So unknown, um, <laughs> unknown black cuddle parties are happening for black men that I don't know about. Please, let's talk about it because I think that's me that's huge. And so on the West Coast, I think that we're building that that coalition, but it's still um, an ungoogleable state. And um, that to me is one of the things I want to make sure that we're able to make not rare anymore. So I just want to name that as a, a piece that's close to my heart. And it's an honor to be on your show. And thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much. And and can people find information on uh, on all of the work you're doing at holisticresistance.com? Yeah, holisticresistance.com and cutproject.org. Both of those are, are places you can find me. Awesome. Yes, I do have holisticresistance.com. Um, scrolling right there and where the for- fortune cookie is, you can actually click on that fortune cookie and that'll go ahead and send you uh, to that website. Uh, but Aaron, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. This is our hundredth episode. So I'm, I'm honored for you to be here today. So um, thank you. Thank you.
That was Aaron Johnson, creator of the Chronically Undertouched Project and co-founder of the Holistic Resistance and Grief to Action. For more information on Aaron, you can click on that scrolling fortune cookie right there on your screen. We will also have it in the show notes. Also, June's issue of Authentic Insider is out. Check out Authentic Insider at TraumaSurvivorThriver.com. That's TraumaSurvivorThriver.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider magazine in your inbox monthly. Well, well, that wraps up season four of a trauma survivor thrivers podcast but we'll be back in the fall for september um in september for season five please sign up to our email list to get updates and follow me on social media you can find those links at trauma thriver.com i'm Lee binstock again thank you for being a part of the conversation and joining me for the 100th episode hope to see you in the fall take care